You're listening to Never Sleeps Network. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula, where not only can you get your comics, your magic cards, and all the stuff that geeks like you will love, but now that accessible washroom is finally complete. This hits home for me, you guys. I'm a guy who uses a mobility scooter. I know how hard it is sometimes to have washrooms accessible in Toronto. So I'm really proud of Leon for putting his money where his mouth is, completing that accessible washroom, and making equal access for everyone. So go on down to 3456 Young Street, Harry Tarantula, and tell them Aaron sent you. Hey, fan people. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know I'm always talking about the connection between comics and coffee. It's because I love coffee. I do my French press every morning. I do the pour over. That's why we've teamed with the superheroes at BAM Coffee, bamcoffee.ca. Their roaster, Aaron, is Canadian. He's from Saskatchewan, and he's a geek like us. That's why he's putting his clean, ethically sourced coffee in something called a BAM box. He's combining coffee with the geek swag that I know our listeners are going to love. That's 700 grams or 350 grams of coffee with art prints by local Canadian comic artists, a limited edition mug. I mean, what more could you ask for? If you want to try it, he's giving a special promo code to Speech Bubble listeners, SB15. So go to bamcoffee.ca, type in SB15 at checkout, and get 15% off your first BAM box. Hey, maybe you want to just try the coffee. That's okay too. He'll send you 150 grams of coffee, and all you gotta pay for is the shipping. I mean, that's a pretty amazing deal. So go to bamcoffee.ca and tell Aaron that Aaron sent you. Listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries, with your host, Aaron Broverman. Hey, fan people, welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I am your host, Aaron Broverman. You found us on Never Sleeps Network at neversleepsnetwork.com. Don't forget to follow us on all social media at Speech Bubble. Pod. Don't forget to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts as well. It helps people find us. If you tell me that you've reviewed our show, I will send you a comic from my personal collection. With me today is Michael DeForge. Michael is a multiple Doug Wright and Ignatz award-winning artist. He spans many mediums in comics, including graphic novels, web comics. He's done his own art shows and things like that. He's also a designer for Adventure Time. Some of his books include Brat, uh, Leaving Richard's Valley, Stunt, uh, Ant Colony. Uh, You can find these books and many more. Uh, through Koyama Press and his other publisher, Drawn and Quarterly. His newest book comes out on March 3rd. It is called Familiar Face. 
It is published by Drawn and Quarterly, so we're going to be talking to him about that. And I think he's making an appearance at The Beguiling on March the 12th. Is that correct? Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. Awesome. So welcome, Michael. We're so honored to have you in. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're a real heavyweight in this community. Um, we're definitely going to talk about Familiar Face. Uh, great job on that. That was that was a really amazing read for me. Thank you. Um, but first, I want to get into uh, where you were originally born. Um, I was born in Kingston, but uh, I grew up in Ottawa. How was that for you? What was your growing up life like? Um, yeah, it was fine. <laughs> Ottawa is... Uh, uh, it has like a pretty small art scene, um, which has positives and negatives. Uh, but that was kind of like the punk and DIY scene I came up in. And um, uh, some of those stores were my first introduction to um, punk music and noise music. Um, some of the posters there were my introduction to yeah poster making and silk screening and zines and comics, of course. So, yeah, it's uh, positives and negatives to any sort of small art scene. But what Can you expand on that? What positives, what negatives, what were your impressions? Um, positives, I think anything with sort of, you know, like a tight community means uh, you can feel more supported. And um, sort of lower stakes, which I think is a good place to foster an art practice. But um, something being so small also can mean it can be a little incestuous or something like that. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> uh, I was I, I moved to Toronto for school and like uh, um, I was pretty happy to to move, you know. Right. You studied philosophy, right, at the University of Toronto? Yeah, but not for long. Like, I feel like I was in school for such a small amount of time that it's hard to even say I studied philosophy. But that, that was technically what I was there for. But I, I dropped out pretty fast. Did Did philosophy... Uh, influenced your work in any way? Like, why why did you choose to pursue it in the first place? Um, it was something I was interested in. Um, I was already drawing and, and working on comics, but uh, I did think it was something I wanted to study. And I enjoyed my classes. Like, part of why I left school um, wasn't really that I, I like, hated philosophy. Um, I just didn't really like the atmosphere at U of T. And... Um, I did know that I, I wanted to work as an illustrator and as a cartoonist. And it wasn't like having a philosophy degree was going to help me with that. And I was already kind of like washing dishes and working in warehouses at the time. And I thought it's not like a philosophy degree is going to get me out of washing dishes or <laughs> working in a warehouse. So I might as well just skip it and save some time and money <laughs> so in terms of like your art career and like getting into comics and th that sort of thing um when did your interest in comics start and and why uh since i was a kid my parents had a lot of um, comic strip collections lying around um the ones that were big influences on me were you know like heavy hitters like peanuts and calvin and Hobbes and Farside, but uh Bloom County in particular was a big influence on me um, when I was really young, uh, which in retrospect is kind of funny because a lot of the humor in Bloom County as like a as a kid, as like a 10 year old or whatever, um, was going way over my head. They were making references, political references and pop culture references to things I totally didn't understand at the time. But um, I just really loved the characters in that strip. And I, I loved the the rhythm of it and I feel like it taught me a lot about like the 
the rhythm and cadence of cartooning. Um, so even if I didn't get each joke, I could kind of understand that it was funny in some, in some way. And uh, it's a weird thing where when I look at a lot of my comics I've made since, they all feel really heavily influenced by Bloom County, like Ant Colony, Leaving Richards Valley, Sticks Angelica are all similar to Bloom County in like these very obvious ways. So I think of that as like my, whatever, Rosetta Stone or something. That's awesome. Um, did you get into superhero comics or anything at all? I did. Um, my dad uh, had some superhero comics lying around. He used to read more of them. And then, yeah, throughout high school, um, I, I followed a lot of superhero comics. My dad had a lot of like Frank Miller and uh, Mike Grell stuff, like the Green Arrow Mike Grell issues. And um, I kept up with things... Yeah, right up until about high school, early college is when I kind of fell off of, of keeping up with superhero comics regularly. How did you find uh, alternative comics from superhero comics? Were you like tired of superhero comics or? Um, it wasn't that I, like, I was still I was reading alternative comics in high school and still reading superhero work. But it just came to a point where there were other types of things I wanted to read. And I think there's sometimes an impulse in superhero comics where it's like, you want to read a comic about journalism, so you'll read this, like, journalism comic in superhero world, you know, like, or you want to read a crime story, so it's like a crime comic in superhero world, and then when you discover alternative comics, you realize, like, oh, you can just ditch the superhero genre completely and just read a comic about journalism or just read a crime comic or just read a romance. Um, so it wasn't that, like, I had... I was still reading the superhero work. It was just... Um, I was interested in finding new types of stuff. And uh, I, I do remember like my first kind of early introductions to alternative comics were um, uh, Chester Brown, Seth, and Joe Matt. Uh, they, I had seen uh, Louis Riel, um, one of the early issues of Louis Riel in um, the comic book store. And uh, it was right around the time where I was studying Louis Riel in class, so I was very interested. Um, in seeing this comic, and I liked it a lot. It was like so unlike anything I'd read uh, before in in comics form. And um, eventually, I went to a fan expo. Maybe a year or two later, I think I would have been in grade nine or grade ten. And I, I, I traveled to the fan expo here, and I was in Artist Alley. I think waiting in line to get a signature from some, I'm sure in retrospect, super embarrassing artist. And I saw Louis Riel. Uh, issues on, at a table that Seth, Chester, and Joe were all tabling at. And it's funny to think about how legendary they are and, like, the indignity of them tabling in some, like, 2002 artist alley. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I ended up picking up all of their work and talking to them. Um, it's also a funny thing because Joe Matt definitely should not have been selling me comics at that age. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, it, it, and I I loved all of them, like... The, the Joe stuff I thought was really funny at the time. And uh, Seth's work I found really weird and impenetrable. And, like, there was something about encountering him at a Comic-Con and seeing him, um, you know, like, be wearing a suit. And, was he and, fully doing Yeah, he was fully doing that? At yeah, absolutely. Time? And he was... Um, I remember he was, like, really interested in a sort of off-brand uh, Charles Schultz shirt I had. Uh, and I, it was just, like, a really... Like, I hadn't really seen... Um, cartoonists working like that before and then to see these three who I then found out were all Canadian and all doing this like very unique idiosyncratic work that was my early introduction to stuff and then yeah after that I, I found like um, 
Dave Cooper and Mark Bell and Julie Doucet and all these other cartoonists, Linda Berry, um, pretty shortly afterwards. Nice. What attracts you to the medium of comics? Like, as an artist, you could have gone into, like, fine art. Why Why comics? Uh, I knew I always wanted to tell a story. Um, so I, I know I, you know, I, I sometimes will dabble in, in fine art work and, like, but uh, I do think ultimately um, what I have to contribute is narrative. You know, like that's I think where my my voice is is in narrative. And uh, yeah, that just ended up being the <laughs> the one I. You know, I feel like it. Yeah, I, I don't. It chose me in some funny way. Like I'm I'm sure if I uh, knew how to make a movie better or something, like maybe I'd be doing that instead. But comics is the one that I just always gravitated towards. So it's it's hard for me to to think about why. But I think my strengths are in comics. When did it occur to you that, you know, you didn't just have to be a fan, you could do this for a living? Was that something you always wanted to do? It was something I always wanted to do. I kind of didn't expect to make a living off of it um, for a while. I... Um, you know, I knew, like, commercial illustration was an option, so I always tried to do that. But um, when I dropped out of school, I did sort of expect I would be mostly working in restaurants to support um, comics, because I didn't really have many illusions about, like, how much money there's to be made in especially alternative comics. Uh, like, I I was aware of the situation, you know? <laughs> right, right, yeah, totally. But, you know, you were so in love with them that you just wanted to keep pursuing it? Yeah, Um and uh, I, I was already self-publishing a bit at the time, so um, I was just very happy to be doing that. Nice, nice. Um, you also did uh, gig posters, right? Like you, you did a lot of postering and graphic art and that sort of thing. Um, uh, I know you were influenced by a group called uh, Seripop, I think, from Quebec. Yeah. What is it about them that, uh, that attracted you and that, that influenced your uh, early career? They were just doing poster work that was really different from um, anything uh, I had seen at the time. And since then, uh, both members of that group, uh, they still work together, but now they do like um, fine art, a lot of like installations and performance and video work. Uh, but their posters at the time were just so out there for me. And uh, they, they were operating in Montreal, but I'll, I was both sometimes going to shows in Montreal because it was um, such a quick drive from Ottawa. And uh, sometimes I'd do Ottawa show posters, and it was so radical, uh, like very expressive and bizarre. And uh, the thing that really grabbed me at first too was like they were um, they were really hard to read. You had to kind of like take a second to decipher them. And I really loved how illegible they were. Uh, so looking at their posters taught me a lot about design, and I think. It, it gave me a lot of lasting design uh, lessons. Like what? What were some of the lessons and takeaways that you got? Uh, for poster making, the, the illegibility was a big one where like, uh, I, I'm paraphrasing them who I think are paraphrasing another poster artist named Art Chantry that said um, uh, a good poster isn't just about bringing people in, but it's about keeping squares out. And uh, I really like that idea of like certain scenes having their own kind of private language. And if uh, a poster looks enticing to you, you'll take the time to decipher it. Um, 
And if it doesn't, you shouldn't be at that show, kind of. And I, I did that did really appeal to me. And you can kind of see how that works um, in, like, crust punk posters or, like, uh, metal logos, like metal lettering, uh, graffiti writing. You can see that translated in a lot of different scenes. And uh, that's something I like about comics, too, or sometimes... Um, comics pages are meant to be inviting and as accessible as possible. And sometimes you're supposed to like take a bit of time to figure it out. Um, an artist like Chris Ware is like that, uh, where it can be like a very dense maze-like thing. Brian Chippendale's the same. And even some superhero comics, uh, like I think of like certain Neil Adams layouts, stuff like that, like his X-Men run where, you know, you have to be following along the page in a, in a funny way. Um, like those are those are like really interesting lessons to me. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So when you when you did gig posters, did you just do them according to like bands that you liked or wanted to see? Like how how did you decide like what who to do a poster for? Yeah, when I started in high school, it was mostly you know there weren't that many like it was mostly going to like noise and punk shows, indie shows, stuff like that. And uh, it's a small enough scene that there are only a few promoters. And I would really just kind of reach out to them and say, hey, uh, I see you have this show coming up. Can I do a poster? And in exchange, um, they'd sometimes throw me a bit of money, but it it would frequently just be uh, in exchange for getting on guest lists. uh, So I wouldn't have to pay to go to shows. And then, yeah, since then, I um, accept money. (laughs) (laughs) How do you uh, translate like music into art? Like, what do you what do you listen for? Uh, how do you get like a flavor for for the band and stuff like that? Uh, I usually just try to listen and draw what comes to mind. Um, posters tend to be a bit more fig- forgiving than other types of uh, illustration work, just because um, it is a temporary thing. So, like, even if a band isn't you know, maybe the client is like super happy about how they're represented, like they wouldn't choose it as an album cover. They usually end up being a little bit more forgiving just because, yeah, it is only up for like a month or so. Um, so you get a lot of freedom uh, with like, yeah, how you depict things and how you play around and how you interpret their, their music. And then simultaneously, you were self-publishing your own comics? Yeah, I was making like zines and mini comics around that same time. Nice. And just handing them out to people, or how would you distribute them? Yeah, handing them out to people. I'd uh, pass them along to, like, sort of record and punk stores and stuff like that. Anyone who'd take them, comic stores who'd sell them on consignment. And then, uh, yeah, trying to mail them to to artists I was friends with or artists I admired. Um, When I was in high school and college, uh, I was on LiveJournal, which I'm now realizing is like a social media platform an old social media platform that like there's like a generational divide about uh, with like people who remember live journal and people who don't but at the time live journal had a pretty bustling group of cartoonists on it and uh that was kind of where i incubated uh, a lot of the artists i first met through live journal uh, are still some of my closest friends and collaborators today uh, Jeanette LaPalm is a Toronto cartoonist I, I met through Live Journal. Inez Estrada, uh, Lala Albert, uh, Ryan Sands. Like, I feel like Brian Lee O'Malley was on Live Journal. Oh, like, it was wow. just like a funny, tight, weird, like, a lot of artists who, who worked in really different styles and milieus all kind of 
came together in this this weird way of yeah just a small community of of artists uh, all incubating most of most of whom were pretty young i know you work a lot with uh patrick kyle mm-hmm. i think you guys are in a band together right yeah we've been in two bands yeah did you meet him on live journal as well no we met online at some point actually no i think he and uh him was i think actually maybe i met him just through like a zine fair here like we were aware of our of each other's work just you know by virtue of making comics in like the same city um but i got to know him through eventually zine fairs and actually he helped me out at a there was like a punk show where i got into a like a fist fight with someone and he <laughs> it was like a while this was a very long time ago and he like he, he and chris kuzma kind of like helped me out uh without really knowing me much like they just kind of only knew me because we were all cartoonists and uh yeah it was very nice of them <laughs> nice very cool saved your life maybe yeah it wasn't that dramatic it wasn't it was, it's like hard to even describe it as a fist fight but it was it was a weird thing where they kind of like stuck their neck out for me in a in a, a way um on a whim which nice. yeah how did you find your style because i i find that like your writing is like, you know, it's it's like a drama. You can f- read it, you can follow it. You know, it's it's about human beings and stuff. But the art style is super avant-garde and abstract. People don't look like humans all the time. How did you like develop that signature style that you have? I think that just comes from. It wasn't any sort of intentional thing. It just came from drawing the comics, which. I find it's just what happens with with style. You know, when young artists ask me, how do you find your style? Usually the answer is like, if you just keep working at it, it'll come out whether you want it to or not. Um, when I started making work, I had a different idea of how it might look like. But comics is so rigorous and you end up having to redraw people over and over again that those little ticks just come out whether you want them to or not. You know, if you, you're inclined to draw faces a certain way, that's going to come through. And it's hard to like, yeah, it's hard to even stop once you, you at, do it long enough. So did you find in your early work, like people looked more traditionally like people. And then as you went along, it just got more and more and more abstract. Actually, with anything in my early work, I wanted it to be more abstract. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of the, artists I was looking to at the time, people like Matt Brinkman, Brian Chippendale, um, they were pushing things to be a lot looser um, and uh, a lot more, I don't know, expressive, evocative of some type of evocative of, I don't know, just like looser, looser cartooning uh, and more experimental, formally experimental. And uh, my work, you know, even though I, I do try to push the limits of form and stuff, uh, it does, you know, structurally, it's not that different from like a Dilbert strip. I still do like very tight grids, you know, panel to panel thing. So like my character design might look weird and I might kind of use brighter or louder colors and textures, but um, formally it can be kind of conservative. And I started wanting, and when I started, like I was trying to go for the opposite and eventually I just realized like, this is the cartooning I'm into is, is grids and um, try as I might to do kind of like crazy, wild, experimental layouts. Um, 
I can't. <laughs> I don't. I don't have it in me. You do sort of adjust your layout sometimes. Like with stunt, it's in a sort of horizontal sort of layout. Everything is sort of stretchy and and you know circuitous. Like the bodies are sort of twisted and that sort of thing. And then and then in familiar face. Uh, when you're dealing with like the confessions in Familiar Face, everything is sort of triangles. Mm -hmm. like, the panels are suddenly triangles. Yeah. Um, so obviously those choices are intentional. Do you, like, how do you decide like, okay, here's where I'm going to play with the form and then here's where I'm going to go back to like the grid, Dilbert style as you call it? Uh, for stunt, that was, um, a, a lot of that I wanted it to evoke a movie screen because um, stunt is about uh, a stunt double uh, who works in film so I did want to make it look like a, a movie screen and I wanted it to be uh, very suffocating because a lot of it is about him pushing his body to extremes so I wanted all the pages to feel like um, I was just putting as much pressure as possible on his body and it was always pushing up against the edges of these very uh narrow panels so that was their reasoning behind behind something like yeah stunt okay and then and then for familiar face uh did it just help the narrative to have the confessions be uh in a different panel structure yeah that was that was totally it. it was um i just wanted a good way to delineate between these sort of flashbacks and uh and the present day narrative i guess mm -hmm. yeah and when you're actual uh drawing style is so abstract and loose is it even more important to keep the writing as grounded as it is um that's not something i think too much about like i, I so, try to think of the drawing and writing as being one and the same uh, in a funny way like uh and yeah, I don't. I don't tend to think that much um, about like having my writing grounded or not. Uh, so it's more about like the story that you want to tell, and then this is how I'm going to depict this particular story. Yeah, okay. and and so many of these choices just end up being intuitive. Like, right. um, in the moment, you know, having a, a panel that seems a little abstract, sometimes it just feels right or looks right, you know, on the page, and you just have to trust. You know, you're at, you do this long enough, you just trust, like, uh, that the reader can follow along. And, uh, yeah, it just feels right, you know. But you are dealing with, like, sort of sophisticated themes, like, you know, human desire for connection and, like, you know, people's sort of uh, own unrest in their own selves kind of thing. You know, uh, you know in Ant Colony, there's things like religion and, and how... Uh, societies are structured and that sort of thing. So I, I'd imagine if if those sorts of things were written as abstractly as you draw, like it would be harder for people to like find their center in, in you know what I mean? Like mm. be able to like follow both the pictures and the writing at the same time. Mm. But it seems like the writing is a more is a little more straightforward. Yeah, I. I, I hope so. I also just know, like, as a, those are just my tics as a writer, too, where, like, I, I tend to be, it's another thing where, like, um, yeah, formally, I'm not a very experimental writer. Like, uh, I tend to stick to, like, pretty straightforward narratives, um, even if the, the subject matter is, like, 
might be a little wild in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, formally, it is a very like A happens and B happens and C happens. So yeah, that's right. also just my inclination as a writer. There you go. Um, so when would you say like you your career really took off? Was it two thousand nine? Uh, at at TCAF, like you're you're self-publishing, you're going along, but then when did when did you start to become like the Michael DeForge that everybody knows and is published by like Drawn and Quarterly and Koyama and that sort of thing? Um, the Michael DeForge is funny. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> uh, Anne Koyama, um, who publishes under Koyama Press, she sought me out at a TCAF, and. Um, even though I'd been doing mini comics before, uh, I was saving um, money. I was making uh, working overtime uh, dishwashing to print what was going to become Lose Number One, which was like a like you know one person anthology that I, I did for a while. And when Anne sought me out, she asked if I had any sort of projects that she could work on, and. Lose was one of them, the first issue. And she took a big chance on me because she was familiar with me from my illustration and my posters, but hadn't read like any of my comics at the time. So uh, she printed Lose number one, and then I was kind of able to take some of the money I had saved to publish it to um, take a bit more time off work to work on issue two. And that kind of helped get the ball rolling on being able to make comics like much more regularly. Would you say that? you and Koyama grew together like was she at that point was she pretty new as a like starting Koyama press yeah I think she did uh I think we did grow together like she was she had published a few books but um I was one of her first comics she had been doing kind of art and illustration books and had done one mini comic and then um yeah after that she became kind of known as a comics publisher but I do sort of imagine that you know, Anne has such a good eye for for artists that um, Koyama Press would have become Koyama Press with or without me. But uh, I do feel very fortunate that we did get to grow together. Mm. What is she like to work with? Oh, she's great. She's like one of the most generous human beings like in the world. Uh, she has a very uh, her nickname in comics is very earned and well deserved of like Saint Annie, where. Um, she not only has this like amazing eye for young cartoonists, but she's just so supportive and gener- and generous and uh, wants so much to lift up voices in comics. Um, and she's ex- expanded to, you know, voices in the art world in general, where she's now doing collaborations with fine artists and performance artists. Um, so yeah, she's just like amazing and generous, uh, she really like saved my life in a lot of ways. And it's a thing where I say that and you find out like a lot of other cartoonists will say the same, you know, um, in the sense that you weren't sure you could continue like financially or yeah, weren't sure I could continue financially, emotionally, <laughs> like in all these sorts of ways. And, um, yeah, she was like an, an advocate for me in a way that I think is really rare. Now the model for publishing lately, it's changed in a lot of ways where, um, you know, for better or worse, like there were a lot of gatekeepers in comics that, and in the art world that were bad, but there were, would be this thing where you could expect that an editor, curator, publisher, whatever it might be, record label, 
would be your advocate and would like try to break a new artist. And so another thing, yeah, it's like good and bad that that's that was the way the industry was structured, you know, because right. it did center, it did give a lot of power to you know very specific people. But now this weird thing has happened where you're kind of expected to break on your own. And that's when a label or publisher or whoever swoops in and picks you up um, and gives you like a distribution network or whatever. But you've already kind of like built an audience yourself. Right. Because nobody wants to take risks. Yeah. And, you know, like that uh, that works for some artists, but it doesn't work. For, not every artist is like great at being a cheerleader for themselves, great at advocating for themselves, mm-hmm. great at contextualizing their own work or selling it, you know. And... Um, I'm certainly not. And she was able to be an advocate for me when um, I don't think I would. I I don't think I would have been very good at doing it myself, you know. And speaking of her generosity, I just want to give uh, the listeners sort of a picture of that. She started doing these like monthly grants Mm -hmm. for artists. So if if you're an artist and you have like a project, uh, you can like reach out to her and she'll give you some money. Yeah. Uh, you know, not, you know, obviously she's picking probably. But yes, there is an application yeah, process. Yeah, there's involved. an application process. Uh, it's not just like fistfuls of dollars, but, you know, uh, you guys should try it um, if you are an artist. Also, um, Koyama Press is closing, right? So how do you feel about that? Um, it's like bittersweet. I'm sad because I love publishing with her. But as a friend of Anne's, I'm happy she'll get a bit of a break. Like, she's one of the hardest working people I know. I rarely ever see her on vacation. So um, as sad as I am to not be able to work with her professionally, it does mean I get to see her more socially. So I'm kind of happy about that because, like, out of anybody I know in the world, she deserves a bit of a break. And I'm also happy that she got to end it on her own terms. I do know a lot of people... um, on the creative side, on the publishing side, on the, like the kind of book selling side, who, you know, it's not the most forgiving industry. And I've had friends who had to leave kind of on, you know, bad terms. Uh, they're either forced to leave the industry because they can't make a go of it anymore, or they just become embittered by it or burnt out by it. And uh, I would have been very sad if I saw Anne just get burnt out or saw her get to a point where she just resented the industry. Mm-hmm. And uh, knowing that she was able to, like, leave on her own terms and leave with such, like, a wonderful slate of books uh, uh, does make me happy, you know? And it's it's really healthy that, like, you can recognize that, like, that she can recognize that in herself of, like, okay, now it's it's time to go. Yeah, and I think it comes from watching friends and peers get burnt out in about as like extreme a way possible, you know, like, mm-hmm. and, and you kind of see like, well, I, I don't want that to happen to, to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then it was you guys publishing loose together that sort of garnered some of your critical acclaim. Like that's what won like the Doug Wrights and the Ignats and, and that sort of stuff. Um, how does that feel? Like when, when like the wider world outside the Toronto comics community, like these awards that you've, heard about you know through reading comics and that sort of thing when they start you know recognizing you and and you start getting known in the in the wider world um yeah i mean it feels very nice and very grateful for that uh you know comics is so small too though that like um 
as grateful as I am for it, it there is like a funny like most of the work you're still just at home, you know, <laughs> like you're just at home alone. Um, so you don't think about it that I don't think about it that much, I guess. So I, I'm very grateful when I do get to go to a, a festival or do a reading and people come out. Um, but yeah, comics is just uh, it's just like a funny small little world. Do publishers take more notice of you if you can say like I want an Ignatz or a Doug Wright or anything like that? Uh, I do think so. Um, yeah, you'll get on people's radar uh, for sure. Um, I think it was probably after, yeah, like uh, I think it might have been at a Doug Wright Awards that I even met um, Tom Devlin and Chris Oliveros and Peggy Burns, who uh, ended up working with a Drawn and Quarterly eventually. Nice, nice. Um, you're one of the few artists that has like two publishers simultaneously. Mm. Uh, do you ever think about that? Like in terms of like, wow, like I, I'm working with two different publishers. How do you know which work goes where, uh, that you're doing? Uh, some of it is like with, with Koyama Press, um, Lose being the format that it was made it also like a very good fit for my short story collections eventually. Um, especially like once I stopped working on Lose. I still do like working with um, uh, short stories. I still sometimes think of myself as a bit of a short story specialist. So that felt like a natural home with Anne. Um, and uh, some of the D&Q books, uh, they felt right just because a, l a few of them felt in dialogue with other D&Q work they've put out. Um, Something like Leaving Richard's Valley was uh, was very influenced by Seth, for instance. So it kind of made sense to like bring that there. But generally, uh, it wasn't... Like, I would just kind of switch between the two just by virtue of having enough work that it made sense to, you know? Like, I, I was working at a pace where I was putting out uh, usually two books a year, and it's a lot to ask one publisher to put out two books a year. So splitting them between the two just kind of made sense. Oh yeah. That's awesome. Um, so with this new work, uh, familiar face, which is, which is coming out, um, it, it deals with like sort of our time now, because you're talking about like the internet and the way that it sort of isolates you. It's a whole society of, uh, augmentation and making yourself better through technology. It reminded me a little bit of the that Upgrade movie. I don't know if you ever saw Upgrade. But uh, yeah, and, and as a person with a disability, uh, it kind of spoke to me because of the constant updates of people's bodies. And, you know, like they would just sort of happen. I don't even think it was always desirable that mm -hmm. people would just evolve and transform into into whatever. And that sort of spoke to me from like a, from like a an assistive device perspective. Like I feel like I'm always, you know, I'm I'm always interacting with some sort of machinery in order to in order to like get around. Mm. So I'm wondering, were you thinking about those augmentation communities uh, when you were doing the work? Because I know that like uh, the relationship between the disabled community and those people that like want to augment their bodies by choice is sort of a controversial one. Like some people really like it. They want to, 
they're building exoskeletons so that they can so that they can walk again and that sort of thing. And then other people don't really like it because the attitude is, you know, in the future, you know, we'll be able to like, you know, make you walk again or like put something in your spine so that you can you can uh, be at like full human potential. Mm. But people just, you know, they like who they are. They want to stay a person with a disability. And I, I feel like because you were, you, you know, you're talking about the internet and technology and that sort of thing. You're also talking about subculture. So where you talk, where you uh, thinking about those sorts of augmentation communities and like science fiction in that way? Um, I wasn't thinking about that conflict specifically, but um, that is very interesting to hear about the, that conflict happening right now. Um, it was uh, kind of, yeah, the, the way in general our lives um, end up being at the whims of these machinations that we don't have much control over. Uh, algorithms that um, we don't even know always what their ultimate purpose is uh, and are designed um, in this way that's, you know, increasingly opaque and seeing just the way our, uh, I wanted to be about, yeah, our day-to-day lives changing that way, our jobs changing at, at, the, at these sorts of whims, our neighborhoods changing at these whims, and then taking it to its most extreme conclusion where, um even our bodies and physical appearances are left at the whims of, yeah, these supposed optimizations that we don't even know why or how they might actually be optimal. Um, so that was kind of my thinking with the, the premise of the book, is just trying to take take this thing of of having your phone or whatever constantly being updated whether you wanted to or not, um, sometimes in ways that, yeah, do sometimes make it feel less functional than it was before, and just taking to its most extreme conclusion. I, I wanted it to be um, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that was it. <laughs> nice, nice. I lost my follow-up thought. <laughs> that's okay, that's okay. Um, yeah, because you especially see that in the in the map making and the cartography, where like the streets suddenly change or are updated, and it sort of reminded me how like we can't call a person without our phone because we don't actually remember our phone numbers. Mm-hmm. We can't drive anywhere without GPS because we don't actually know how to like get anywhere anymore, and yeah. everything is, you know, we're be- like you said, we're being controlled by, you know, a navigation system and 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 a phone and and like people are like forcing us to go along with it in the sense that you know i guess the extreme conclusion as it is now is like if you don't update this phone it's no longer going to work you know or if you don't buy a phone now your old phone will not work forever we've basically decided that your phone is broken yeah. so go get it so go get a new go get a new one kind of thing and and a lot of the things that uh, uh, originally seemed kind of liberating about some of these developments in technology or the internet or whatever um they've switched in this way where they're they're not liberating you know like the the promise of being able to go online and be anyone you want or whatever that's kind of like we don't really have that available to us anymore instead it's this other weird thing where we can't be anonymous at all and all of our data is you know feeding into different companies making money off of it or whatever you know like it a, a lot of the the things that felt liberating and freeing about 
uh, about having a phone, for instance, no longer feel that way. You know, like uh, the the idea of a, of a cell phone, like a something that could be made uh, much more cheaper than it is now, and having access to a map and uh, a dictionary and an encyclopedia anywhere you are in the world, like that should be this wonderful, liberating thing, but instead it's become this thing where it's actually limiting people's, you know, if you don't have a phone, you actually can't access huge parts of the world. It might affect your ability to get a job or find uh, find places on the map or whatever. And um, yeah, I, I wanted to write about how that that's flipped, these, these things that have all this liberating potential, revolutionary potential, are now actually um, oppressive in all these other ways. And you're living in a city where... Uh, it's constantly in flux and transformation from like a real estate perspective. And mm -hmm. that's having detrimental impacts on like poor people and uh, even like cultural institutions are going away because they can't afford to be here anymore. Uh, were you thinking about that as well? Like there, we're on King Street West right now and there's huge swaths of it that have been around for a while they're going to be demolished. If you walk down the street, there's like huge buildings that just won't be there in the city. You won't maybe recognize it anymore. Yeah, a lot of my work is about how cities are becoming less and less humane. And a lot of the things that used to make cities not only appealing, but um, actually useful uh, are going away because um, they're just they're being used for something else. They're being used, yeah, for the interests of capital, of development, of real estate. And um, that was, that definitely played a part in Familiar Face. Um, in Leaving Richards Valley, the book I did with D&Q before, it was also an online strip. That's a huge part of it um, because it does take place in present-day Toronto. And it is about, yeah, the way cities are, are changing for the worse right now. Mm -hmm. For sure. Um, there's also a huge part of Familiar Face that's about the lack of connection. It's about a person who their job is to, like, field complaints about, you know, the the map constantly changing and the way that the city is constantly updating and, and that sort of thing, but they can't do anything about it. It's like, it's like communicating with, like, Amazon or Uber, where if there's a problem, there's no one for you to actually call and communicate with. You're sort of sending your uh, complaint into the, vo into the void mm -hmm. kind of thing. And uh, this person is uh, basically, like, looking for uh their girlfriend because it's it's like a break it's like a breakup story in, in that sort of weird futuristic context mm. so i just i just wanted to tell the listeners about that um but in terms of this you know finding connection or or not being able to connect even though there's so many technological ways to like have access to the rest of the world um is that something that like really really resonates with you and like bo bothers you yeah, and um, a lot of the premise for a familiar face, like the, the job you described, is influenced by my jumping off point was this uh, like real life jobs that are we're seeing right now that are kind of emerging, which um, the, the really like well-known publicized ones are things like uh, people who are just tasked with reviewing content on Facebook or YouTube to either um, tag it as tag whatever the content is or flag stuff like pornography or violence. And um, there are like these very well publicized stories of 
people who are not adequately psychologically trained watching hours and hours and hours of YouTube footage, a lot of it inane, but some of it is quite horrifying. Sometimes it'll be like very violent videos, um, psychologically damaging videos, things like conspiracy theories, whatever. And um, uh, that's like the extreme example of the work, but there's even all these sort of smaller versions of it too, where like Netflix tagging is a thing where um, people whose job it is is to uh, um, tag different Netflix movies, not just with sort of the broad genre of like action, sci-fi, drama, whatever, but with all these sort of subjective um, descriptions too, like uh, like even more subjective descriptions, like a strong female lead has a twist ending, anti-authority, whatever. And there's increasingly this market for labor where you're part of this black box in an algorithm but you're kind of you're in collaboration with this algorithm but you're the algorithm is dictating it you know like you're um there's probably a more eloquent way of phrasing that but we like to think of all of these uh, of all like the youtube algorithm the netflix algorithm whatever it might be amazon's algorithm as being this kind of closed circuit thing and like trusting in this weird way but there is like a bizarre human side to it with all of the biases and subjectivity that humans bring into it and what is um kind of disturbing about it is that it's uh yeah it's not an even collaboration it's it's um humans working at the at the whims of these algorithms you know right and there's things happening to you in terms of your choices or what you get to choose on netflix that are purely based on someone else's opinion mm-hmm. of, of the work i guess and you don't even you don't even know because it's happening like behind the scenes so you think you're making a choice to watch a particular movie but there's you don't have the agency that you think you do or it's not entirely your decision mm-hmm. yeah and it and it's uh you know it's a growing job market and uh, right. <laughs> i wanted to write a little bit yeah a little bit about that yeah because what if you think that like uh, a movie in the twist ending category doesn't have a twist ending yeah but you don't see it because it's not like tagged appropriately or for what you're looking for or something like that yeah yeah it's it's this weird thing of like we don't have ownership anymore like we can only see movies if like netflix wants us to and at the time that they want us to and like, you, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. if it's available this month, you can see it, but then there's stuff that's never going to make it to Netflix. Yeah, you know it's, I mean? uh, it's frustrating. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. So I also noticed that, like, your color choices in Familiar Face were very, like, bright and assaultive. Is that to do with, like, the way marketing is sort of in our face at all times? Like, was that a deliberate choice as well? Um. I do tend to just gravitate towards uh, loud colors when I'm when I'm working in full color. Like I, I do, kind of equal parts black and white in full color. But when I do color something, I usually go for loud and garish, um, or kind of neon or, or something. Um, but it was intentional to make it look a little. There's a thing with dystopian movies and dystopian fiction right now where. It's common that dystopias will either look kind of like cyberpunk cool, you know, like Blade Runner or whatever, or um, Mad Max, kind of like hellscape, armored cars, 
Or there's like the Black Mirror or Spike Jones's uh, Her, where they go the other way, where it's like super clean and austere and like beautiful looking, and that's right. what horrifying is like. It looks like an, an Apple store, but uh, and I think all of those, you know, like they're good and bad things to all of those depictions, but I I sort of imagine that our future hellscape dystopia isn't going to look that cool or beautiful. I think it's more likely that it's going to look like like the emoji movie you know like it's gonna look uh messy and chaotic yeah it's gonna look like a a buzzfeed quiz about what disney princess you are you know like it's gonna it's gonna look just garish and cheap and uh tacky and uh we will live inside ralph breaks the internet basically yeah yeah i didn't see that movie but totally that is like that is sort of the vibe i picked up from those trailers and uh um and that was something I was intentionally trying to evoke because there's like a few artists kind of who who do recognize that and do paint their dystopias that way. But I'm not sure um, if I see it enough. So that was my my attempt at contributing to whatever the the look of uh, our coming hell. <laughs> in addition to working in black and white, also there are some works where you pick a singular spot color, like something like stunt is mostly like blue and that's like the only color that you use. Mm-hmm. Um, is that for like emotional evocation as well? Um, usually I just pick one at the, uh, either when I'm about to print it or at the beginning of a project that uh, I think might look nice. If I, if I do want to work with like um, a single tone, I just think it looks a little nicer than gray. Uh, the blue seemed a little moodier, so I thought it made sense for stunt. And I did like, pink for sticks angelica like kind of like a warm rosy pink and um it, that made sense i thought for sticks just because that was a bit of a warmer story um and uh yeah i thought maybe evoke the natural world a bit more than a bit better than like a blue or a green would how do you choose like what to write about like like a lot of your stuff is like you know grappling with like existential consequences and and like the human condition and that sort of thing but like they're different takes on it. Like sometimes it's positive, sometimes it's negative, you know, different parts of it and that sort of thing. So how do you like figure out what you're going to write about? Is it just what you're going through at the time? Um, how does that work? Yeah, it's usually just what I'm going through on the t- at the time or what's on my mind. Um, uh, there's a lot of like autobiographical elements to my work. Um, some of the stories I write are a lot more personal, uh, even though they're not never straight autobiography. Um, I will loop in bits and pieces of my real life into it. Something like stunt is um, like extremely personal, and then other stuff. Something yeah, like Richard's Valley or, or um, Familiar Face. Uh, some of that personal stuff is in there, but um, a lot of it more is just yeah, me reacting almost in real time to to things I'm thinking about, to, to things happening in the city or, or whatever. I, I'll be reacting in real time to it. I also noticed that in some of your work, you you sort of build in diversity, but not in an intentional, like, look at me, sort of diverse diverse way that some, some work does. Like, I noticed that, like, in both stunt and in familiar face, it looked like the relationships were same-sex relationships. So, oh, is sure. That, is yeah, that, yeah. Is that so? But it seemed like a that it was a like it was like a natural thing. It wasn't like a we're doing a gay book. Like like you know you know what I mean. Like that some people 
if they if they want diversity in their work, they sort of announce it. They sort of they they like announce their progressiveness sort of thing. Mm. But you seem to just okay, this is just what it is. This is what this is how I want to uh, represent these characters. Um, is is that a choice as well, or are you you just don't see enough same sex uh, relationships in media, so you just want to contribute to that? to that dialogue like how, how do you choose okay like this person's going to be in a relationship and and it's going to be it's going to be a queer relationship and that's just how it's going to be yeah i mean it's just like i'm queer it seemed that my life is full of queer relationships um like it just it's not something i think that much about it just comes Natural. out and yeah well, like like why why wouldn't um it show up in my work like right. <laughs> the same the same rate it shows up in anyone's yeah lives it feels anything. that way like i didn't feel like i was being commercialized too like sometimes sometimes i find like there's a lot of try hardness especially now in, oh sure in, in sort of di- in sort of diversity especially in work you know what i mean and I, I i liked that your work is just like oh it's just a relationship and it, you know doesn't really matter you don't really pay attention to it unless you're really paying attention to it. And I wanted to highlight that in this, in this podcast that it's possible to just do something. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, and not make a big deal out of it. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, your work for some of the major publishers like Marvel and DC, because you have crossed over. Marvel did that strange tales. Oh yeah. Uh, anthology and that sort of thing. But y- you, it's very unique because you got to do it in sort of your alternative style. <coughs> so so um, what is it like being like a previous superhero fan, like when you were in, you know, high school and elementary school, and then suddenly, you know, these publishers who barely ever publish like avant-garde things suddenly want you for your avant-garde style? Um, well, that was just a unique kind of one-off thing. I uh, don't expect that to happen again. Um <laughs> <laughs> The Strange Tales project was really cool. That editor uh, was very open with kind of whatever I wanted to do. Um, worked with a lot of other like cool cartoonists for that project. Um, but I'm pretty sure like right after that happened, Marvel uh, fired him. <laughs> so yeah. I, yeah, I don't expect a, a thing like that to happen again. But uh, like I, I was grateful for the gig. You know, it it, it was like a fun one to work on and. Um, uh, I think he had come across my work because I had done a, a, a self-published. It eventually got collected in um, a short story collection, a short story book. But uh, I had done a self-published Spider-Man comic before, and uh, I'm pretty sure he had seen it, and that's why he he thought I'd be an okay choice for it. When you do self-publish, um, you know characters from like big uh, corporations. Do you have to be aware of like copyright and like I know how litigious Disney can be. So do you have to make sure that they're in like a parody sphere or? Yeah, I think the piece I'd done at the time, it was pretty clearly like a pair, like it, I don't think anyone could have, have read the the comic straight, you know? Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it was pretty Disney. And I just, I can imagine it being on their radar in a meaningful way, you know, like their legal department's radar at least. Um, so it's something I'm aware of, but it was never, it's not something I do enough that it's, uh, I've worried about it. Mm. Um, yeah. So I, I don't tend to worry too much. Do you have thoughts on like superhero comics now and like 
what, what do you what do you think of them since you're so steeped in like the alternative side i don't keep up with them well enough to have like very formed opinions like uh a lot of them seem you know super alien to me mm. uh a lot of them look bad but <laughs> there's a few every now and then like something will catch my eye that looks kind of interesting um or like some artist who who is putting out cool work that i'll i'll keep up with a little but uh um, yeah, for the most part, I just, it just seems so separate. Um, and, and like, it's, it's funny cause like it's said its own language that a lot of it's indecipherable to me, even though I kept up with it so long, like just leaving for however many years has rendered so much of it indecipherable because I'm just, I'm both not up to date plot wise with whatever big development is happening, but right. the longer you spend away from it, um, the harder it is to come back to and even look at a page and understand like the way those pages are laid out and I'll look at the way word balloons are laid out and think like this is unreadable to me like that's right. just a mess of balloons you know right like, um, I need so much context that I can't even understand it yeah, yeah. and like uh, um, so many of the aesthetic choices are just ones that like don't appeal to me so like I, I just find it hard to look at like uh, the trends in digital coloring tend to be kind of like garish in, in this way that I, I don't really enjoy. So, um, so yeah, every now and then I'll, I'll see something, um, that, that will, will stand out to me and I'll pick up. But, uh, for the most part, I feel kind of unqualified to even to talk about whatever, whatever's happening right now. Like, yeah. Nice. Um, how did Adventure Time come to you? That uh, they sought me out, which I'm very grateful for. I, d I don't think I would have even um, known to apply for the job because uh, I wasn't qualified for it at the time. They kind of taught me. Um, I had no experience in animation, uh, no formal training in animation. But they were looking for, that's kind of what they were looking for, was they were looking for artists who didn't have any... Uh, animation habits that they had to unlearn they kind of wanted artists who could bring their own voices to the table and artists that they could teach how to work on the show like they could teach here's how you work on adventure time so uh they met me at i think i was at um what's it called ape alternative press expo yeah, yeah. i think i was there and i can't remember if that was where i met Penn ward for the first time but uh andy Restaino and phil ridna rebecca sugar Maybe even Adam Muto were all there, and um, they said that I should do some concept art for the show, and they picked me up just to do concept art for one episode. And after that, pretty pretty quickly after that, they invited me to audition for a regular job. And it's one that yeah, I totally didn't expect to get. And if they hadn't, if they hadn't, you know, sought me out, I was a fan of the show, but I would have no idea that that was even. I was even hireable, you know. <laughs> so since you're not an animator, like, what does your job actually entail? Like, what does a designer for Adventure Time do? Um, at the time, I did, yeah, the the show, the reg like, uh, Adventure Time proper is, is ended. Um, but at the time, I did props and effects mostly, some character design. Um, so props and effects, I was mostly just doing, like, if there was a sword, I drew the sword from a bunch of different angles. If there was, like, a car drew the car you know chair and then these <laughs> nothing too flashy these props come from your own mind or do they tell you what to draw uh it come from i'd work off a storyboard so like uh 
Uh, and I've done some storyboarding for the show as well. But um, uh, you would get a storyboard, um, and there you'd be given a list at the beginning of each week that says like, "Hey, you need to draw like this wizard from all these different angles, this sword, this chair, this explosion, this ray gun, whatever." Um, yeah, but the show kind of worked in a way where they would divvy up jobs too. Or even though props and effects was my main my main thing that I did for the six years I was on it. I did do character work. I did do concept design. I did title cards. I did storyboards. Because they did want artists to bring their own personalities to the table, they would give each artist, like, opportunities to kind of, like, flex their muscles a little bit. And, um, uh, you know, for, for me, it would usually be, like, concept art where they would want you to um, bring more of your own voice to the table. Uh, I did, uh, I did get to do concept art on a few episodes where a lot of the finished look came from those drawings. And, uh, uh, yeah, that was really cool. I got to like push, push designs in, in uh, more extreme ways. Did you see yourself in the finished product? Yeah, totally. Like there, yeah. So a lot of the stuff I drew, it, it was just me, like being a, a hired gun, trying trying to like right. do do something in a straightforward way. But there would be moments where I, I got to design certain elements, um, my own way, and and seeing that in the in the finished episode was really cool. And there, are, yeah, one or two episodes in particular where I, I contributed a lot um, to the finished look, and I was surprised about how much even made it to the to the end result. Do you remember what those episodes are called? If people want to go check them out, yeah, one was um, one was called Butopia. Uh, I think that's what it's called, and it um took place in like a sort of underwater, submerged, abandoned shopping mall. And then uh, another was the VR episode of the Islands miniseries. I forget it was like either two or three in Islands, and that one I contributed a lot to the the final look. Nice. And I think Adventure Time is coming back in the form of a miniseries called Distant Lands. Yep. Uh, did you work on that as well? I did work on that. Um, not the not to the same extent I did on the show, but uh, I did contribute a bit to that. But I'm not sure if I'm allowed to talk. About, I, don't, I can't remember like what's been announced or not. Uh, so I don't know if I can say what it is I contributed to, but I did work a bit on that. It says that at least on their, their, um, their Wikipedia... It says that it's going to air sometime in 2020, but everything is to be announced, like when, okay. that sort of thing. Uh, so that's why I know about it, and that's yeah. why I know it's coming out this year, but I have no idea anything else about it, basically. I mean, there's a lot of aspects that I have no idea about. I, I <laughs> The stuff I contributed to and the stuff I got to see like looks really cool, and it looks like they're doing stuff that's totally new, which is also why I think it's like, a, like, I don't think anyone involved would have wanted to just do a rehash of what the show used to be. I think it is like they're pushing things in really new, weird, radical ways. And um, uh, so the stuff I've seen is like really cool. <laughs> did, did you work on the comic as well? Uh, not real. Oh, I did one short story. Um, I did a short story for like they did backups. I did like six pages or something for one of the. Yeah. Nice. Cool. So I guess like now that like that's ended um, and, you know, real estate prices in the city have like skyrocketed and that sort of thing. But you are a very critically acclaimed and, you know, consistent working artist. 
what is it like uh, trying to be an artist uh, without maybe a, as much of a consistent paycheck as you once had, especially when things are getting more and more and more expensive? Uh, it's like a mixed bag. I'm lucky enough that I'm a, in a place with both my commercial illustration career and my personal work, like my books, that I am able to make a living here. Um, my income is pretty much split like half, changes year to year, changes month to, mo- month, to month, which is kind of the nature of, of yeah, working this way. Yeah, But uh, it's usually like half the books um, and then half uh, commercial work. And yeah, it's like, uh, I wish it was better, but I'm, I'm pretty fortunate, so. Nice. And you're going on tour with Familiar Face, right? Yeah. So you're coming to the Beguiling on the 12th of March? Yeah, I think it's the 12th. It's that week if it's not exactly the 12th. Nice. Yeah. So where else are you going? Where can people see you? I'll be in San Francisco, New York, L.A., Minneapolis. And there's a Montreal date that hasn't been announced yet because I don't know if it's been scheduled yet or something. Um, but I think those are the cities. I'm, I'm pretty sure I didn't miss any. That's awesome. And you've also done like installation shows like uh, All Dogs Are Dogs. Mm-hmm. And you were in some of your work was in This Is Serious. Uh, oh, yeah. The indie Canadian comics exhibit that was happening at the Hamilton Art Gallery. Uh, are you planning on doing any more of those sorts of things? Uh, not in the near future. I like uh, I like doing um, really big uh, drawings like that, like very large works on paper. That was uh, the bulk of the All Dogs show was like very large drawings, something like 30 big drawings and um, some large wall scrolls. But uh, I'm not able to work on those anymore because I don't have a studio. <laughs> I used to have, uh, I, I always have done my comics and illustration work from home. Um, right. A lot of that's digital and I just get to like work on uh, a drawing desk on a computer. But all the really large works on paper, um, I used to have a shared space in Chinatown, like a really great cheap studio space. And that building since got bought and we all got kicked out and I haven't really found uh, an affordable place to replace it. So all that work is on hold. There is like some, um, right now the kind of like tactile uh, thing I've gotten to work on instead is uh, I've been making chess sets in in my room <laughs> so wow. so maybe one day i'll be able to display all the chess sets and then how do you interpret chess sets like are the pieces like wild and weird and yeah i'm just trying to make yeah like yeah. kind of interesting looking um still semi-functional sculpted chess sets uh yeah nice and you can still tell that it's the queen or the king or yeah more, more or less yeah <laughs> <laughs> cool uh, that's kind of too bad though that you can't do larger things because one of the things that I really liked about All Dogs Are Dogs is sort of that mascot. Oh head. yeah, like that was one of the standout pieces. Yeah, and that, those were made with. Um, I made them with all the the sculptural elements. Someone I shared that studio with, Phil Woolham, who's uh, a really wonderful sculptor here. He does uh, work on paper as well, but um, in addition to that, he makes these incredible sculptures and he used to work as a mascot designer too that's that's really awesome um how did it feel to be included in the uh canadian indie comics exhibit like like it seemed like every legend who's ever worked on a independent comic in canada was was in there so it was like sort of a hall of fame yeah that was really cool that was a cool show um 
I don't think a ton about like like comics and their place in galleries, uh, but seeing it all in person is like very impressive. And and um, I do like you know getting to see the the process of different artists, uh, which you you know you don't always get a, a good feel of on the printed page. But when you look up close, you can see like oh this this person uses whiteout or this person pastes up things in a certain way or oh, i can't believe this person like works at this scale you know so yeah. that's a very cool thing to like see like the way that chester brown use, uses post-its oh yeah totally i stuff. mean yeah yeah the way he lays out his comics like it's so perfect but when you hear the process like it seems so unintuitive to me and i, I can't believe how wonderfully it all turns out uh <laughs> because i knew if i tried something similar it would be completely uh, illegible. Nice. So now that you're about to go on tour, what are your hopes for Familiar Face? Familiar Face is coming out. Uh, you know, what do you what do you hope for the work? Um, I usually just hope people like it. You know, <laughs> I hope people read it and respond to it. I um, uh, it's so hard to predict like how something's gonna be interpreted or received once it's out in the world. So yeah, I hope people read it, and uh, I hope people read it thoughtfully and hopefully some of them will enjoy it <laughs> and when you're when when a work comes out are you still thinking about those things or have you like completely moved on from like you know connection now you're thinking about something else that's going to be in like a new in a new project or, or that sort of thing yeah usually my head's in the next book okay. like I, i've started work on something else and it's kind of where my head is at and right. there, there's always going to be themes that carry over like i i do frequently circle back to the same themes just hopefully from different vantage points with each book but uh i do find once i finish a book i kind of forget about it completely and there's an awkward thing like yeah, this is my i think my second interview i've done about familiar face and um uh i feel like i've forgotten so much about it and i have to get used to talking about the book again because yeah i haven't thought about it since i sent it off to the printer yeah and then someone sometimes on tour you're talking like live on stage in front of an audience and stuff like that so for sure Okay, so when people want to know like where you are or what what's next for you, how can they follow you? How can they keep in touch? Um, I'm on Instagram and Twitter. Hopefully, if you search uh, my name on either of those platforms, I'm like higher high-ish up on the, <laughs> the list of results. Uh, it's like Michael underscore DeForge on Twitter. Um, yeah. So that that has all my stuff, and uh, my website's Michael Dash DeForge dot com too. And is DeForge like? capital d small e capital f or do you care it's uh uh, just spelling it it is capital f but on twitter and instagram it won't it it doesn't matter if you capitalize it or not when you search it yeah awesome man well it's been an honor having you i can't believe we had uh like this extensive a conversation and uh we'll see you next time on speech bubble thanks my pleasure This has been Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. See you next time. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network is hosted by me, Aaron Broverman, and features audio editing from Armin Zoberi. It has announcements by Craig Mayhem and Sean Ward, with graphical assistance by Brittany Tice.